So Dan, almost mid-November. How's the month going so far? Good, Mary. Thank you. Yeah, great. In fact, yeah, I've actually been out and about a little bit, which is hugely exciting for me generally. But no, I've been, been out and about at the odd conference and things. I mean, it just feels like November is a huge month of sort of just face-to-face stuff generally. I just feel like it's squeezed between the end of the summer, half-term, Christmas encroaching back to the start of December. And there's so much that's just falling now into November. You know, Yeah, absolutely. That. Lots and lots of FaceTime, I suppose. So whether it's conferences, whether it's seeing colleagues, whether it's making sure everyone's okay after this LDI-driven volatility that we've also obviously gone through since the summer. It feels like markets behaving slightly more. I don't really want to use the word normal, but markets behaving slightly means we can all kind of reflect back, look forward, help our clients to kind of put the right steps in place. But that means loads of conversations with clients, loads of conversations with colleagues. For me, November is turning into a bit of a month of lunches, I have to say, but it's exactly as you say, Dan, Christmas is earlier every year. So it's trying to get things in before the madness of Christmas starts up. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if that will just become a permanent feature of work life, that you have these periods of the year which are really sort of around face-to-face stuff, which is fine. It's just there's a lot of conferences that have cropped up, plenty I would have loved to go to, but just had to let go by the wayside because there's just so many. Yeah, absolutely. Including our own, of course, which hopefully people are aware of. So that is on the 24th of November. It starts at midday. We're doing a slightly different structure this year. So conference in the afternoon, followed by a winter party aimed at pension scheme trustees, pensions managers, C-suite individuals. So if you haven't yet signed up, but you're keen to attend, hosted at the Savoy in London, so hopefully convenient for most people, really hope to see you there. We'll link into that in the show notes. And just to sort of segue into this episode we're about to get into, the conference I went to yesterday actually was really interesting because I remember going to the same one a year ago. And of course, a year ago, November 2021, we were just looking forward into what was being seen as this big rate hiking cycle. And there was a real energy, expectant energy, I remember, around it because people were thinking, what's it going to be like? What's the best analog? Are we talking like the 2000s? Is it like 2007? Where are we kind of thing? and lots of postulating around what rate heights going to look like. And of course, now we know <laughs> um, a lot of what that looks like. And of course, that's what we're exactly what we're going to get to with Karen in just a second. But one of my takeaways was just that there's just so much you can't predict. Most predictions are just wrong because that's the nature of predicting in an uncertain world. I mean, no one predicted Russia invading Ukraine, for example, really not as far back as November 2021 anyway. So there were lots of interesting bits to take away from the stuff a year ago that I think was relevant. And I think you still got to give it your best shot because that helps you prepare. But it's lovely to be able to actually listen back and reflect back on stuff from, from a while ago, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's one of the beauties of having a guest return, which obviously is what we're doing today. So listening to Karen now and comparing to what she said a year ago, I think we've both noticed she got a large amount right didn't she? But as is always the case with predictions, not everything will be right. And you might predict the outcome without the driver being the thing that actually drove it or vice versa. That's the key thing that often happens in financial markets. You get something right, but actually the consequences of it are not what everyone would have thought they would have been. So is that sort of right or wrong? It's it's hard to say. And listening to the episode we did with Karen a year ago, she banged the table on corporate earnings. That was definitely right. That's been strong. She banged the table on labor markets. They've stayed super strong. But obviously the sort of implication of that is that equity markets might have stayed strong as well, which has not been the case. Back then, she was talking about some of the inflation actually being good inflation at that point in time. And obviously, you wouldn't say that anymore, I don't think. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the whole energy crisis, that that took people by surprise. That wasn't something people were kind of predicting. No, absolutely. Should we hear what she's got to say this year then? Yeah, let's do it. Let's get to it. Great. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Well, listeners may have noticed there's been a lot going on with interest rates, inflation, and the general macro backdrop. So we were really keen to speak again to Karen Ward, the Chief Market Strategist EMEA at JP Morgan Asset Management. Always really interesting to talk to you, Karen, on all things macro and interest rates, et cetera. So welcome back. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Karen, welcome back. Could you perhaps give the listeners a reminder of your role at JP Morgan, but also perhaps your latest role and appointment that's been made in the last few weeks? Yeah, so I run the Market Insights program at JP Morgan Asset Management with a strategy team that sits independent of any funds. And our function basically is just to help clients think about the world 
navigate volatility and news flow. So as you can imagine, it's been a pretty busy year for us. And then more recently, when Jeremy Hunt was announced as Chancellor, he has appointed an external council of economic advisors, and I've been selected as one of those. So that's keeping me equally busy. Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Congrats on that role. That's really quite a coup, isn't it? It must be really interesting, really interesting role to have. Last time we spoke, Karen, on other matters, you were talking about Lego. You were talking about how with two young boys, you do a lot of Lego building. What's your latest on that? Well, I'm sad to say they've gone through the Lego stage. And whilst I used to spend all my time picking it out of my feet and hating the bricks, I'm really (laughs) missing it. So no, I'm now very much a pitch side mum. My youngest apparently is absolutely going to play for Chelsea and the oldest is absolutely going to play for PSG and be the next Messi. So no, I now spend all of my weekends in the rain stood on the side of the pitch watching them run around but actually it's a joy it's great fun excellent fun and slightly easier on the feet I guess than slightly easier on the feet yes although chilly I'm definitely in the market for a nice wool winter coat I think (laughs) yes I have seen those the huge really puffy ones that are completely waterproof and like nothing's getting through this no Cold, no rain. You probably yeah, one of those or one big... of these dry jackets that people, when they've been sea swimming in the winter, I'm thinking about yeah. one of them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's not overkill at all, Karen, not at all. <laughs> puffiness is quite important in winter jackets, I think. Puffiness is kind of highly related to coolness and warmness. Well, The cosy factor, made. yeah. <laughs> well, Karen, we couldn't really believe it's almost exactly a year to the day since we recorded last time with you. The last episode that we recorded with you, I think we called something like dawn of the new interest rate cycle. You were talking very eloquently about what interest rates might do this year. We're obviously sort of a whole year into that cycle. I wonder if you could sort of take stock of where we've got to. Let's start maybe with Bank of England rate rises. What's your take on? We've obviously got a certain amount. We've had rises we've not seen in decades. How much further could it go? I think take stock, that's a good idea. So effectively, I think we came into the year with economies having actually recovered remarkably well from the pandemic. And we came into the year with actually most of the developed world looking pretty full capacity. So I remember when we spoke last time, I was saying inflationary pressures are really building as far as I can see. And the central banks are going to have to get on top of this. Now, what I didn't anticipate was Russia invading Ukraine and all of the tragedy that has unfolded there. Of course, what's happened, therefore, is then we've had a cost shock hit economies that are at full capacity. And that's what's really important, because if you have a cost shock hit a weak economy, then central banks won't necessarily have to raise rates because the economy is already weak. It's just going to further dampen activity. When, however, you've got a cost shock hit an economy at full employment, the monetary policy, the interest rate consequences are completely different because what they've had is this world of people's cost of living going up, but workers feeling actually pretty confident about asking for more money. And that's the nightmare for a central bank because that's when you get into this vicious cycle or a sort of wage price spiral. And there's been aspects of that this year. This is all the central banks. But I think as we look to where we sit today, they've clearly had a realisation that they were behind the curve, that they really had to catch up. The Fed has done a lot, I think, to try and catch up pretty quickly. So has the ECB. The Bank of England has been a little bit more slow, I would argue. I still don't think rates look quite appropriate to me, given the capacity pressures in the economy. So they're at 3% now. I absolutely think we'll see four. I think there's a good chance that we see five. And that is because, to me, the labour market, which is really the epicentre of what you should be watching when you're a central banker, still in the UK looks incredibly tight. Vacancies are above the number of unemployed. And until the economy weakening starts to feed into a weaker labour market, then the Bank of England is going to have no choice but to keep the pressure and make sure the economy is weakening. That's a tricky spot, isn't it? I mean, we talked about this last time a little bit because it's easy to talk about labour market tightness, labour market weakening type stuff, but those are potentially real people losing their jobs is what you're talking about there. 
Do you think it's the case that the Bank of England effectively has to force some people to lose their jobs in order to get on top of inflation? Is that as difficult as the equation is? I mean, they have no good options right now. As you say, a central banker having to force a recession to get rid of inflation is something that they never want to do. So I do feel for them. They're in an incredibly tricky position. But unfortunately, this is the lessons of the 1970s. Unless you get on top of it early and you do force that weakening, the risk is by being late, that wage price spiral really gets embedded. So people feel that 10% cost of living, they go and ask for 10% more pay, their employers think, well, I've got no choice, there's no one else I'm going to replace them with. So they give them 10%. But then of course, that company's costs have gone up 10%. and They're raising prices again. Then what you have to do, the 70s showed us that when it's all got out of control, then the recession that you need to get rid of it is deep and ugly. They don't want to get to that. I don't think we're facing the 70s just now, but I think we're precariously moving in that direction. Hence, a bit more stitch in time saves nine kind of mentality for the central banks, I think, would be a good idea. But ultimately, Dan, this is the big question for investors right now. This is absolutely the question. How bad does the slowdown have to be to get rid of inflation? Is a mild downturn? Is vacancies just drying up? Because at the moment, it's not that unemployment needs to rise. We just need all these vacancies to dry up. Um, Is that mild recession going to be enough to get rid of inflation? Or does it need to be something deeper than that? I'm of the view that a mild recession is going to do the job. But that's really what we're looking month by month. This is why this volatility is persisting, because we're just getting information on that with every CPI print, with every labour market print. None of us know. What do you think? I mean, you mentioned we're sort of precarious. I wonder if you've got a sort of notion of what that tipping point is and what it looks like. What data do we see that tells us we're actually at that sort of tipping point? It's all of the inflation data and it's all of the labour market data. So the ideal scenario, let's talk about the optimistic scenario right now. The ideal scenario is we go through the next couple of months and the CPI prints start improving because well, the supply chain is improving. Yes, the inflation numbers start coming down. And there's a good chance of that because supply chains are improving, freight costs are improving, energy prices have stabilized. They don't need to fall, they just need to stabilize for inflation to come down. So a lot of those pandemic related transitory factors, they should start falling out. So hopefully CPI starts coming down. And then the labor market. What we just need to see is that a little bit of job insecurity brings those wage numbers down because wage growth is still pushing north everywhere. And that's going to keep the central banks nervous and hawkish. So those are really the prints. I am on the relatively more optimistic side that we will see headline inflation coming down. We will see vacancies drying up. We'll see wage growth start to slow. We're starting to see already hiring and quits start to slow. And that's been part of the reason wage growth has picked up so much is because people have been bid to other jobs. And that's sort of been picking up wage growth. So there's some inklings that it's there. But we had a payrolls print last week. And that was still too hot for all the talk of gosh, these higher interest rates are going to kill the US economy. It really is not yet. So that's good news, of course. But then it leads us to that secondary question of well, maybe the central banks have to do a little bit more in order to engineer that slowdown. I guess a key question for investors is what's priced into markets? What's the consensus at any given point? Do you think that mild recession is roughly what's priced? I mean, I say priced, I mean more like global stock markets, like in the S&P and MSCI world and stuff. Do you think that's the scenario that's being priced? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think certainly in bonds, let's start with bonds first, maybe. But bonds have the US Fed funds rate peaking at five. Pretty much similar for the UK, actually. The Bank of England tried to say, we don't think we're going to get to five last week. But I think the market's saying, well, you've been telling us that for a long time. And then the ECB is expected to get to three. So there's still quite a lot more tightening in bond prices, which comforts me because I don't think they've topped out yet. So I think there's still that tightening in bond prices. In stock markets, earnings have proved so far incredibly resilient. We're just going through the US earnings season I think that demonstrates a point I've been making that inflation isn't necessarily bad for corporate earnings. Actually, inflation is pricing power. It's companies feeling they can raise their prices. And I think part of the reason these earnings numbers are coming through is just demonstrates that degree of ability to 
maintain those margins. I do think that that resilience won't stay. I think we will see earnings decline into next year. But the stock market is already down 25% from its peak. And so I think that the stock market, that's the S&P, obviously, various benchmarks, Europe's down a little bit less, NASDAQ's down a lot more. Um, I think something like a 10 to 15% earnings contraction next year is in the stock price, which to me is that relatively mild recession. On earnings, just quickly, I mean, re-listening to the episode we did with you before, you did pound the table on corporate earnings back then and labour markets. And so I think you definitely got those two calls right in the earnings have been the big, well, they've been the two big stories of the year, haven't they? In the face of high inflation and lots of central bank tightening, earnings have still been pretty strong. and Labour market's been very, very strong. So I think credit for a couple of good calls there, I think, a year ago. Oh, thank you. <laughs> take them. You've got to take them when they come. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, you've referred a couple of times to policy in, in the US and in, in Europe, obviously, of course, in the UK. Do you have a view on, you've already mentioned maybe the US hasn't quite gone far enough, but clearly other central banks globally have gone a bit further than the UK, a bit quicker than the UK. What's your view on the sort of relative actions that have been taken so far? So I think the US has gone quite far in its normalisation journey. I think they've probably still got another maybe a percentage point to go. But that's in bond prices. That's expected. The Bank of England are telling us that they don't think that rates are going to have to go that much higher. I don't see where they're getting that, personally. I do think inflation is going to prove more persistent. The economy possibly is already in a recession. I mean, I think partly their view is that it comes down to that central question that I asked myself is, how much of a slowdown is it going to take to get rid of inflation? The Bank of England are making the judgment that that slowdown is going to quite quickly erode inflationary pressure and the cost shock itself. It's the type of inflation that kills inflation because it kills disposable income. I'm just not so convinced. I think workers are partly, I think there's a sort of been a slight, and this is why I think they were all a little bit late to the table, all the central banks, I think that we all got slightly lulled into a full sense of security in the last decade that inflation was dead. And it was dead for structural reasons, because workers were no longer in unions, because of globalisation, because the central banks themselves had inflation targets, and therefore no one would ever dare raise their prices more than 2% because they knew the central bank didn't want them to. <laughs> I think all of that sounded a little too good to be true. I've always felt inflation was sleeping rather than dead. And I just don't think it's going to go away quite as easily. And I do think, yes, workers aren't in unions anymore. But when there is no unemployed out there, we've got the lowest unemployment since the mid 70s here in the UK, you might not be in a union, I still think you're going to ask your boss for more money. And I think that persistence of inflation is going to be the difficult factor, even though we are entering a recession, so far a mild recession, I do think it's going to be that persistence. The other aspect to the story is that I think the interest rate sensitivity of the UK has changed. And that's partly due to how our mortgage structure has changed. We've now got half of households are on a five-year fix. Reverse back to 2007, prior to the global financial crisis and the housing issues then, the vast majority were on variable rates. So those higher interest rates immediately fed into mortgage payments and crimped activity. Half of mortgages, they're not going to see any of that for five years. Now, it is going to start trickling. There is about 20% on variable rates. Some of the two-year fix are going to start rolling off. So it is going to start to come through. But I just think it's going to be a much slower pass through. But again, that means the economy isn't collapsing quickly under these higher rates which of course is a good thing <laughs> to some degree. We don't want the economy cratering, but it means that slowing activity feeding into slowing inflation, that whole process is a bit more drawn out and probably is going to take higher interest rates to get the desired impact on inflation. One of the things you said last time a year ago was that you felt that back then central banks had sort of got inflation wrong a little bit. They were slow off the mark. And obviously, there'd been that whole, during the sort of summer 2021, there was the whole, oh, it's transitory thing. And by the time we were speaking last, I think it was kind of obvious that it probably wasn't. Yes, I think before you were saying central banks got inflation wrong and they were too slow, which I think is now reasonably well accepted. But the point you made was that 
back then their stance was we would rather be too late than too early because it was sort of a balance of risks thing. I dare say that balance might be changing a bit now, it feels, doesn't it, in terms of how they're seeing the balance, but how are you seeing that? Yeah, I think that's right. And again, I think it stems from this sort of rather complacent belief that inflation was dead. I mean, you often hear central bankers when they talk about the balance of risks of getting things wrong, they would say things like, we know how to get rid of inflation, but we don't know how to get rid of deflation. So that would make them always err on the side of delivering too much inflation because they never wanted to get into this deflationary spiral. And I just think experience over the last two years has been a sort of fascinating testament to how that might not be quite right. Because actually, maybe deflation, actually, we've learned that if your government is working with you, you can get people spending and you can generate inflation. I mean, that was the big interesting test of the pandemic was joining monetary and fiscal policy, quantitative easing, buying bonds, handing money to the government, government sending checks in the post. This was Ben Bernanke's helicopters. You remember in the early 2000s (laughs) when everyone was worried about Japan and, oh gosh, deflation, the deflation risk of Japan. And Ben Bernanke gave this wonderful speech that was called Why It Won't Happen Here. I wrote about it recently in the Financial Times. And he was saying that as long as you've got governments and central banks working together, you can always get people spending as long as you give them enough checks in the post and you can always generate inflation. And I think the pandemic has shown, oh gosh, you really can send people checks in the post, they'll spend them. And I think therefore, actually, maybe it's actually inflation that's the bigger risk. Because the problem, as we're seeing, is that, and you alluded to just then, Dan, It's not fun for the central banks to have to generate recessions to get rid of inflation. And the politics of that potentially becomes extremely difficult. I sort of feel it was just this, A, belief that inflation was structurally dead, but also if they were getting it wrong, happier to get it wrong by being too late. And I just think we have learned a lot about the inflation process And the relationship with policy and the relationship with the economy is always changing. And I think that some of that isn't proving right, that actually you've got to worry about inflation and the choices and the balance of risks. Maybe it's not so easy to get rid of inflation when it's in the system after all. So I suppose speaking of getting rid of inflation when it's in the system, and I suppose in your sort of, forgive me if it wasn't your central case, but the case where it's a not too deep recession that helps to get rid of inflation, what are we looking 70s. at in terms of one, three, five years? I suppose markets have consistently been expecting inflation to fall back broadly as the Bank of England governor has been sort of positioning, but markets have sort of consistently looked not quite right on that. And I wonder what your view is on. So there's two ways that this could be wrong. One is good and one is bad. The good way is that actually we go through the next few months and we find that these economies can actually cope quite well with higher interest rates. And it's actually growth that's proving quite resilient. So vacancies aren't falling back and therefore spending, employment is still quite strong, people are still spending and actually growth itself is proving really resilient. And therefore interest rates need to go higher, but it's actually because we learn that these economies can cope quite well with what we used to think of as more normal interest rates, like 5% or so. In which case, that's a scenario where, okay, the bond market's still got to adjust slightly, but maybe corporate earnings remain resilient. The stock market kind of deals with that scenario relatively well. That's the good option. The bad option, which means rates go materially higher, is that we're entering a recession It's getting quite nasty, but inflation is still not coming down. And that's where they have to keep engineering something. They've basically got to engineer much higher unemployment, a much deeper contraction in activity, a much deeper reduction in corporate earnings in order to force that inflation out of the system. I think it's more likely we see the former, personally, for all the reasons I've just mentioned about the UK perhaps being less interest rate sensitive. There's a good degree of that in the United States. So two years ago, when that 30-year mortgage rate hit 1.7, 
imagine getting a 30-year mortgage for (laughs) 1.7. There was a heck of a lot of refinancing activity. They took advantage of that, understandably. So you've got a really big chunk of the US housing market that's perfectly happy. They don't care what the Fed's up to unless they want to move house or they want a new loan to extend their house, etc. But there's a good chunk of them that don't really care what the Fed are up to. The other aspect of the story is, of course, higher interest rates aren't awful for everybody because there are savers out there. Okay, we don't have many of them in the UK to the degree you do on the continent and in places like Germany. But, you know, one of the arguments, for example, about why zero or negative interest rates never stimulated activity in the eurozone relied on the fact that there are savers there. Germany has a very high saving household sector and they tend to save in cash or cash like instruments. And as those interest rates go up, those individuals are happier. They've got more income. So I do think it's possible. Point I'm trying to make is I do think it's possible we see even higher than 5%. That could be for good reasons, actually. And I think one of the points I like to talk about, because I think there is this fear of higher interest rates. Everyone assumes that anything other than zero interest rates must be awful news for the economy, for investors. And I just really want to challenge that idea because zero interest rates are great for growth stocks, but everything else, not obvious to me at all. Zero interest rates, as I've just said, did nothing for Eurozone growth, did nothing for global financials, did nothing for our bond returns. So I don't think this assumption that higher interest rates is absolutely necessarily a bad thing. If they're higher, because they represent a healthier economy, better spending dynamics, then that is great news for investors. Because actually, I think after the pain of this year, one of the most exciting things is bonds are back. Bonds are doing now what I want them to do. They provide me income and they provide me diversification. Whereas for about 10 years, they didn't do anything for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I think thinking about interest rate scenarios, as you asked me, I think it's really important to think about, are they going up for good reasons? Because actually nominal growth is strong. Or are they going up for just ugly reasons? Inflation is not behaving. Because how you invest in those two scenarios is quite different. That's a really interesting point about bonds. I completely agree with you, by the way. Maybe we'll come on to that a bit in a second. But I just wanted to quickly talk about market pricing. I mean, do you think it's fair to say that the whole last year since we last spoke, the markets have been wrestling with this hiking cycle? And there's that great chart in JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets that I know you're quite involved in that shows the number of hikes that were priced at any given time during the year for the main central banks. And it just goes, it just keeps going up. It starts from a year ago, just goes up at almost a straight angle around a little bit. And markets have had a lot of opportunities to get it right and get it wrong. Do you think they've got it right, got it wrong? And where do you broadly see that now? The Guide to the Markets, that's my baby. So I'm glad you're reading that as well. The whole purpose of the Guide to Markets is a, it's a chart pack, which just helps you understand what's going on in the world. And as you say, the chart shows that no one predicted interest rates getting to these kind of levels. And to be fair, I thought everything would go higher, but I didn't think we would, at the start of the year, see a 5% for the UK or the Fed. I think my criticism of the central bank that there was this complacency about inflation applies to the whole market. We were lulled into this decade of disinflation and we'd all convinced ourselves that inflation was never coming back. But also I think the other aspect of the story is we've been in a structurally declining interest rate world. And one of the arguments you get for that is Every crisis, the level of debt goes up. And therefore, when you want to then renormalize, you're facing a higher stock of debt. And therefore, that's why you can't push interest rates higher. And I do think what happened in the pandemic is that, or through the last 10 years, that actually households did do a good job of balance sheet repair. Corporates aren't over leveraged either. Where the leverage built in the last, certainly through the pandemic, was in the government balance sheet. Now that poses a challenge for the central banks, but the private sector, how resilient they are to higher interest rates, as I said, that's what we're learning about. I do think it was just this broad use of the last decade to predict the future. And I remember at the start of the year, you know, one of my key points being 
that we've got to be really careful about that because regime changes happen. You go back through history and the 70s obviously was one period and then you had sort of the 90s, which I would talk about as the kind of ultimate Goldilocks where you had strong growth, strong investment and healthy level of good inflation. Then post-financial crisis, you had another regime. And my point was, we have just had two phenomenal things happen to us. We've had a pandemic, a massive shift in government policy, and we've had Russia invading Ukraine, which is forcing an energy transformation of a scale that we have never seen. So let's just forget last decade. (laughs) I just did not feel that that was at all relevant now for as we look forward, because the policy world is totally different. Reasons for investment on the government and the corporate level because of the energy crisis is all totally different. As investors, then we really have to sit back and go, if the macro world has fundamentally changed, and I'm mentioning just a couple of factors, reshoring, changes to globalization. I think loads of things have been overhauled given events of the last two years. If the macro world has totally changed, how might assets perform now versus the last decade? And that's what I think we're all still learning and still learning. I mean, you look at the bond market now, there's this assumption that the Fed gets to five, but pretty soon after that, they're cutting. So there's still this inbuilt belief that the US can't cope with five. Five's going to do irreparable damage. I'm not so sure. And I think that's what Jay Powell was saying last week of saying, we think we've got to get rates up, but we're probably going to hold them there actually for a bit. But I think the US economy is actually going to do surprisingly well on that. That to me doesn't translate into the idea that therefore the US economy is going to have a deep recession, because I think we're going to be surprised by the degree of resilience to higher rates. Should we come back to bond markets in a bit more detail? I wonder whether, I guess, as you look across globally, there's any particular part of the world where you're most excited about what bond returns could look like based on central bank policy and length of rates staying higher and that sort of thing. Let's start with the US Treasury market. I think that the US Treasury 10-year is moving around 4%. Some days it's a bit above, some days it's a little bit below. 4% to me looks like a good number for the US. When I think about the macro fundamentals, inflation being two, I would build in maybe a long-term number that's closer to three than two. Maybe that's something we want to talk about. 1% real growth. 4% kind of looks like a sensible number to me. So I've got then a decent yield on the treasury, but it's the diversification properties as well that I'm now getting from treasuries because As I said, to me, what I want my bonds to do is to provide me a steady income. But the other thing I want them to do is to go up materially in price when things go wrong and my stocks are falling. And because yields have got so low, they'd lost the capacity to do that in the pandemic. I mean, when the S&P was down 20%, my treasuries gave me virtually nothing to compensate for that. Now, if let's say I've totally got this resilience wrong. And actually, the US economy craters in 23, inflation's falling, activities collapsing, and the Fed are actually a turning to much easier policy. And let's say that 10 year goes to 2%. I've got a 20% return on my US Treasury. So if that S&P goes down further, my bonds can counteract some of that. So I think is certainly adding duration for me now. I was waiting for 4%, it hit 4 and I thought, like it now. I think as well, bearing in mind some of the emerging markets, I would argue, no one still wants to touch them because they're worried about dollar strength. But I think the emerging world was actually pretty well ahead of the game in terms of their tightening cycle because inflation took off a little bit earlier. And, you know, my emerging market portfolio managers keep reminding me that we're all excited about 5%, but that's still a negative four when you look at the real policy rate, whereas in EM, they've got very positive real policy rates. And so I do think for those that have a longer term horizon, there's really good opportunities as well in local currency emerging market debt also. I think just some of our basics... I would argue that still pretty low down my list is gilts at the moment, purely because I just think this idea that it's not going to take materially higher rates from the Bank of England to get rid of inflation 
I'm not so convinced. I think the policy, the one part of the world where I think the policy rate profile could still potentially be a little bit higher is the UK. But there's plenty of things happening in bond markets, spreads as well, and corporate bonds. Okay, spreads haven't blown out to desperate recession levels. But I would argue that's A, because I think the recession will be relatively mild globally, but also the quality of corporate debt, because some weak companies were already taken out in the pandemic, the quality has improved. So finally, high yield is high yield again. It's actually 10% rather than four or whatever nonsense it got to when we were deploying zero interest rates and quantitative easing. So I think there's lots in the fixed income space to be excited about, and it's pretty broad now. I was going to say that, actually, if you just look at investment grade corporate bonds sort of yielding about 6%, sort of call it 4% treasury plus 2% spreads-ish, 6% per annum returns from pretty safe bonds. I mean, you probably would have had to have been in emerging market equities a couple of years ago to get those sort of returns right. So I saw a LinkedIn post the other day that I really liked and someone was saying the headline that no one's telling you is that investing just got a lot easier because you can and now get And this is exactly my point about we're all terrified of higher interest rates. Oh, no. You know, hear this argument all the time. Zero interest rates inflated all asset markets. And therefore, as the tide goes out, it's all going to be laid bare. That's just not right. It's certainly not right for fixed income, but I don't think it's right for stocks either. I think these low interest rates were great for a segment of the global stock market, which was growth. And growth valuations have come back down to earth as interest rates have adjusted. But there was plenty of global stock markets that really struggled for the last 10 years, not just because interest rates themselves were zero, but because the reason interest rates were zero, because there was no nominal growth. And the financials is the best example of this. So yeah, absolutely, Dan. I think it makes the point that it's been a really painful year, but bonds particularly are a self-healing asset. No pain, no gain. And we're set up now after this reset, I think, for much better returns, particularly for those long-term investors that can manage any volatility that still needs to play through in the next couple of months. So it sort of feels like the way you've just described some of those asset dynamics, Karen, is almost back to the books we all read 10, 20 years ago. If you ignore the last 10 years where we feel like we've unlearned a lot of economic theory, some of what you've just described feels like more what's in the textbooks. I wonder, though, if you agree with that, are we back to what people wrote about 30 years ago in terms of what economic theory should look and feel like? And particularly if not, what are the data points that you're now looking at to kind of think about how asset dynamics work in the potentially the new world? I don't want to call it normal because I think we're probably all a There's bit never of that normal. word. No. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think the textbooks were still right, but the way we were interpreting things was a bit off. So for me, economics is all about supply and demand. It's that we all like to try and pretend we're clever, but it's just not really that hard. What we had in the last decade was massively expanding supply, China entering the global production chain, many other emerging markets, discoveries of commodities across North America. This is phenomenal positive supply shock. So loads of stuff. What we didn't have was enough demand. And that was because after the 2000s and then the financial crisis, nobody wanted to spend. Households didn't want to spend, companies didn't want to spend, and governments didn't want to spend either. So we had loads of supply, not enough demand. We had weak pricing. And now I think just both of those factors have changed. The supply has deteriorated markedly. Globalization, I don't think is going to go into reverse, but I don't think it's going to be the growth enhancing disinflationary force that it was. We've had a massive commodity shock because as far as I can see, Russia, one of the biggest commodity producers, will permanently be out of the Western supply chain. So supply is not as conducive, but actually demand's looking stronger than it was, partly because we were stuck in our houses for two years. So we've all got making up for time still to happen. Governments are still spending and investing in a way that they weren't post-financial crisis. So I think the textbooks were right. It's the ingredients that have materially changed. And this, Mary, is where I can demonstrate how awful my memory is, because your second question, <laughs> aspect to that question. Oh, the data. Data, that's it. Data. Yep. Inflation, inflation, inflation. I'm not putting anything in my diary on the inflation prints, which is kind of sad, really, because 
central banks shouldn't be operating on current inflation because we know that monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. So if they're setting policy on today's inflation, that's not ideal. But as I say, we're learning about the inflation reprocess in the economy. And therefore, every print they get, they either go, oh, inflation's lower. Oh, phew, we understand it. And also there's a bit of a PR exercise for them at the moment, to be honest. It's not ideal when your job is to manage inflation and every month it comes out higher and you look like you're not on the ball. So the inflation prints are going to be absolutely critical. If they start coming down, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. A lot of that volatility will go away. But then it is the labour market as well. To know that inflation is sustainably going to head somewhere towards two, if not two, then we need to know this wage pressure is easing as well. And we do need to see the labour markets loosening, hopefully just vacancies drying up and that does the job rather than unemployment rising. That's the best scenario, not of course least for those concerned, but for the economy and markets as well. Those are the things I would say really for us to watch. Yeah, I think last time when we asked you that question, you said there were three things to watch, labour markets, labour markets and labour markets. And so it sounds like that is really still one of the main indicators of choice. I just wanted to really quickly just reflect super quick on the point you've been making a lot about this regime shift out of the period we've had over the last 10 years, because it's awfully easy now to turn around and say, well, God, wasn't that weird? We had that whole decade of super low rates and wasn't that just a weird thing that happened? And thank goodness we're all back to normal. And obviously a lot of people attempted to say, oh, I told you so. You know, I told you those rates were too low. And I try and get away from those obvious narratives because a lot of people who didn't agree with the lower rates, didn't think they could last, went out of business or underperformed or their clients went out of business or whatever, way before that finish. You had people pounding the table 2013, 14, 15, saying rates must go up. And a lot of those people, if they were putting positions on, would have lost a lot of money. And you still sometimes have to accept that some of the newness might be permanent, but could it also shift back? It's a really funny old balance. I mean, in, in hindsight, it's obvious when these regimes change, but no one actually rings a bell and says, send you an email, by the way. Just so you know, that regime's over now. We're in the new one, just so you can update all your books. No, absolutely, Dan. And to be clear, I don't think interest rates should have been higher in the last cycle. I think they were right, because I think the demand and supply dynamics that I just described to Mary, abundance of supply, very weak demand. Actually, all of those policies and what the central banks did through that time, I think was appropriate. But I do think the situation has now changed. And I think you're right. It's never easy to know. I think my key point would always be just to be open minded and keep reading the history books. We have a sort of tendency. And I think we always believe or different policymakers kind of believe that each new lot believes they've solved macroeconomics. <laughs> I remember back to Gordon Brown's speech where he put together some fantastic policy changes. He made the Bank of England independent in their ability to set rates and he created fiscal rules that were not to be broken to create fiscal stability. All of that I was to end boom and bust. Of course, it didn't. We learned in 2008. So I think there's just always this tendency as each decade goes on to assume that we've solved the puzzle. Unfortunately, I mean, I'd love to sort of maybe a blight on my profession. It never is that easy. The underlying factors of the economy are constantly evolving. The policymaking frameworks, the politics It's always evolving. And I think, therefore, my key point is always just be really careful with using the past as your anchor and just stay open minded to the way the world is changing and how that could change everything about investing. So if we do turn away from the past and maybe look forward as we come towards the end of the episode, I wondered, Karen, what your sort of biggest worry or thing you're most excited about, actually, either way over firstly the next 12 months and then maybe we sort of go bigger picture and think about sort of the next decade? I mean, the biggest worry, the thing that keeps me up, is that inflation doesn't start to behave. That actually we find activities weakening pretty sharply, but the cost pressures are so acute that businesses are still raising prices. We've got strike action across the board 
and therefore workers are still getting higher pay the 70s actually is where we're back at that's the thing that keeps me awake at night the other thing which is probably the thing that keeps me awake but I think will eventually be seen particularly for investors as a significant opportunity is we now have to dramatically change how we source and use energy we had ambitions to do it anyway for climate change reasons but they were 2050 targets, 2030 targets. We were going to take our time in how it was going to happen. And now the onus is energy security rather than climate change. And I think if you look at the scale of the transformation that needs to happen in every aspect of where we get our energy, how we transport our energy, how it gets into our homes, how it gets into our businesses, how every device that we use uses it, it's going to have to be phenomenal. But that might be what finally spurs our investment revolution. Because the sad thing about the last decade was we just couldn't get businesses investing. Zero interest rates, tax incentives didn't get them investing. And then that gave us all sorts of problems like low productivity, low real wage growth. Whereas I think if this spurs, with some good policy to support along the way, if this spurs a sort of investment boom, as we all reconfigure our energy systems, then that would be a sort of meaningful step forward, I think, not only in tackling climate change, but in energy security. And I think there's going to be lots of opportunities for investors. To me, that's the mega theme. Whenever I sit back and think, what's the mega investment theme? It's how do we know the world is going to change or going to have to change? So things like, well, we know everyone's getting older. What are the investment themes on that? We know suddenly our youngsters don't go down the pub anymore. They go to the gym and they worry about protein shakes, et cetera, health and wellness. <laughs> That's a mega theme. And this energy one is, to me, the, just the overarching. Again, if I'm right, that there's not a resolution in Russia, this is just one of the world's biggest producers. And I think it's going to force this change. But there are fantastically exciting companies that are at the forefront of that. And a lot of them are here in Europe as well. So it could be Europe's time in the sun rather than it only ever being growth companies in the US and EM as well. So that's the positive note I'll leave you with. It's lovely to have that sort of positive note to kind of finish on a little bit, isn't it? And just to reference the guide to the markets again, there's some great charts in there on all sorts of things, but on particularly on the energy transition, you've really put together quite an interesting little chart pack on all things about cost and investment flows and all that sort of stuff and changes in energy mix. And people should definitely check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. Karen, as we're coming towards the end here, what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this? So I think the one thing is this idea that we are in a higher rate environment. Interest rates are going to go higher. But let's not reflect too much on the returns we've seen this year. Let's think maybe a little bit more about how some of that could actually prove quite positive for us as investors. So the opportunities that are now available in fixed income, for example, and actually, as we go through the next few months, maybe corporate earnings stay resilient and we'll see the stock opportunities and that the economy and earnings can cope with higher rates too. So let's not focus too much on the idea that higher rates are necessarily bad for us as investors. I don't think that's right. Thanks, Karen. And what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? I think if you can detach your emotions from your decision making, and also try and step back from the noise of everything that's going on and just think, what's the single question? I mean, someone asked me recently, there's so much going on. You've got Russia, you've got politics. How do you think about what's going on in the world? If you can get the one single question correct, then you're probably going to do quite well. So that one single question I would ask all your audience to focus on is, is inflation going to start behaving itself? That's all we really need to think about right now, because everything else stems from that. And if you think inflation will start to behave itself, there are great opportunities in stocks and bonds. If you think inflation is out of control and it's not going to behave itself, you want to hold off. So I think just try not to get too emotional, particularly after a bad year, like we've suffered for stocks and bonds this year. And then just really try to anchor your thoughts on What's the big question? And also, what are the opportunities that have opened up in a year in which the babies have been thrown out with the bathwater? So we talked a little bit about climate tech just then in terms of the mega theme. A lot of those fantastic companies have been thrown out 
in the growth sell-off this year. So in every tough year, it actually gives investors, or certainly the portfolio managers in my place, the opportunity to get the companies they wanted at valuations that are much better than they had access to last year. So I think that's the other thing as well, just trying to not looking ahead and not letting the past I guess that's a big theme of what we said today, both your short term emotions, but also the last 10 years. Don't let the past bog you down in some of the decisions making you're making about the future. I love the idea of simplifying a complex world to one simple question. I, mean, I think that is just brilliant. We should all do that a lot more because you can chase yourself around in circles, can't you? But to actually really try and get focused on one question, yeah, I think it's super important. Last one, Karen, any recommendations for great books or podcasts and those sort of things for the listeners? Yeah, so I'm going to give you one to read during the week and one to read during the weekend. So the one to read during the week is by Professor Jajit Chadha. He's the director of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. And he wrote a book this year called The Money Minders, which you can find on Amazon. I should get commission from this chap, I think. Uh But this book is great. (laughs) I'm not on commission, I will add. What I loved, so we've talked a lot today about remembering the lessons of history. And what was so good about this book is it was a sort of walk back of the last hundred years of central banking and all the different regimes of trying to control the value of money and when and why they broke down. Why did Bretton Woods break down? Why did the gold standard break down? All of these quests to anchor the value of money and why it went wrong. And there were episodes as I was reading that book that I sort of went, oh, no, (laughs) because (laughs) regime change or when the monetary system broke down about politics or just people just not wanting to hear that life had to get tough. You know, a lot of it just made me think, oh, gosh, that precarious word that I used earlier as I was reading that book just made me think, oh, this is tough. This is really tough. So I thought that was a super book for reminding me the lessons of history but it's a tough book. And then, so a lovely weekend read is a book that I read. I'm not sure if it was this year or last year, but A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. It's just a wonderful book. One of those books that I was slowing down and only letting myself read one page a day as I got towards the end because I didn't want it to end and I was getting so (laughs) sad. But absolutely phenomenal central character. Just loved that book. So something a bit more lighthearted after a day of, Great. It's like a diversified portfolio almost. There like you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's work-life balance right there. Exactly. Book okay. recommendations. Absolutely. I think last time you gave us a couple of recommendations too. You had one about helping you relax, I think. Oh yeah, I quite like podcasts. There's a Yale professor called Laurie Santos who's got a podcast called Happier or something. And she does yeah, really the science, well. the science of happiness and that is really Particularly good. Particularly after that a year like this. Yeah, it's another one, another good one. Excellent. Cool. Anyway, Karen, it's been an absolutely great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Always good to join you. So thanks for the invite. Thanks, Karen. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.